I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute. And I'm Jessica Smith with the United Nations Environment Programme. In this first episode of our COP27 special series of Financing Nature, we'll be joined by climate champion Sagarika Chatterjee from the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS. And I'll be speaking with Jose Pugas, connecting from Brazil. He's partner and head of ESG at JGP Asset Management. Hello and welcome everyone and thank you very much for joining us for this special five episode series of Financing Nature as we lead up to COP27. And Jessica, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Helen. I'm excited to be here to unpack this really important topic with you. There's so much potential for nature to help with our climate and development challenges and finance is key to unlocking these benefits, but we need to act quickly. We do indeed. So for the next five weeks, Jessica and I will be talking to leaders in the field of finance and nature about the outcomes we need to see from COP27, as well as showcasing projects on the ground starting today. Yes. This episode, I get to meet with Jose Pugas, who gets us going on the inner workings of this topic from an asset manager perspective. And I'll be speaking with climate champion Sagarika Chatterjee from GFANS to hear about what financial institutions have been working on since last COP26. If you remember, there were some major commitments to deforestation announced by the finance sector, as well as several asks made of our global governments. So we'll be talking about that. And throughout the series, we'll be discussing exactly what we need from COP27. Absolutely. This COP27, we need to collectively drum home that nature and climate go hand in hand and that we need to mobilize capital, not just into reducing emissions across energy, transport, but also creating projects that sequester carbon, as well as financing nature-based solutions for frontline communities to adapt and build resilience. So with that, let's invite Sagarika on. Hi, Sagarika, and welcome. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. First off, just how are you? I'm very good, Helen. Thanks very much for asking. I'm glad. I'm glad. I know it's a really busy time. Um, And and we're going to talk about a lot today. Um, And to start with, we're going to just talk about GFANS and the Race to Net Zero. So I thought for those unfamiliar with these initiatives, could you just give us a brief overview? Yeah, sure. So the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero is a collaboration between Mark Carney, the Champions and Bloomberg, and it's made up of over 500 financial institutions. They are either banks, investors, insurers, or others um, in the finance sector, and they have formed their own Net Zero alliances that then become a part of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which focuses on pan-finance sector action and collaboration. And the way that the Net Zero alliances have come together is um, through the UN campaign Race to Zero, which defines start line criteria, including setting of a net zero target, and also leadership indicators, which were recently updated to cover nature and deforestation explicitly. Mm. And it's exciting to hear this expansion into nature. And it really felt like, you know, last year, COP26 was really the first year that we saw the 
role of one private finance come to the fore in global climate talks, but also the year that nature really became part of those climate talks. Yeah, I, th- I think that's completely right. So we've had the private finance come together on climate um, much more effectively than I think um, before. And then we've also seen nature kind of joining the dots a lot more with climate and with net zero, which is really critical. So at New York Climate Week, for example, this year, Mark Carney spoke on deforestation and nature. And the co-chairs and vice chair of GFANS released a statement on deforestation financing. And that specifically says um, that financial institutions should have policies and conditions consistent with net zero and that transition planning that doesn't cover objectives and targets to eliminate and reverse deforestation are incomplete. This does mark a turning point in terms of what leadership on climate change means and how um, the climate and nature agendas are really coming together much more. And deforestation seems to be sort of the most obvious way that they're coming together. You know, deforestation accounts for, I think, 11% of global greenhouse gas emissions, um, more than aviation and cement production. So maybe we can talk about some of the solutions the finance sector put forward through GFANS last year, specific to deforestation and the progress since that time. First thing to note is that all of this action has to be rooted in the science. And the IPCC has been very clear that we need immediate, rapid and large scale action on deforestation nature for 1.5. The second thing is that ending deforestation, investing in natural climate solutions could provide about a third of the solutions for meeting the Paris goals while supplying the global goal for nature to halt and reverse biodiversity loss by 2030. So last year at COP26, 30 financial institutions who have over 8 trillion in assets committed to taking action specifically on deforestation and nature. And I think what's interesting about the commitment they made is that it's rooted in consistency with fiduciary duty. It recognises that ending commodity-driven deforestation is essential to tackling climate change. So by the end of 2022, these financial institutions committed to assessing their exposure, specifically for palm oil, soy, beef, um, leather, pulp and paper, by the end of 2023 to disclosing risks and mitigation in their portfolio. And then by 2025, publicly reporting on credible progress and actions that had been taken to eliminate deforestation and increase investment in nature-based solutions. So I do believe that by COP27, we will see most of these financial institutions living up to their commitments and explaining um, how they've assessed their exposure. However, this isn't enough. We need to see a lot more. And what are, just out of interest, what are the, some of the challenges you've seen financial institutions have around actually living up to some of these commitments in terms of, you know, it's, it's how, how difficult is it to uh, make assessments on deforestation through supply chains? Yeah, so I think I think the data is improving, but the thing that comes across um, again and again is still this challenge with data. I think the TNFD, which I'm sure um, you know much of our audience is very familiar with, is going to make huge strides in this. It's a multi-year um, approach. It's going to help create a common language. It's going to help give us the framework, give us the disclosure. It's rooted in TCFD, so it's familiar. Um, it will be very helpful. Um, but today, if you're a financial institution, 
constitution and you have a 2025 commitment, it is very challenging. So one thing I expect um, financial service providers that work particularly on data um, to see is that financial institutions are going to come to them increasingly and say, how can you help us with the data that we need um, for these key commodities um, to track how um, companies are doing, how their supply chains are doing in all of this? And we uh, will give you as much alignment as we can in terms of what our needs are for data and how we plan to use this. Of course, the other big challenge that we see is government action. And we know that financial institutions, even those that have made the commitment, um, they still feel that there is um, incredible uncertainty in terms of law enforcement on illegal um, deforestation. We can't have um, uh, real change on deforestation and nature unless we see that happening. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, data data is key. Um, so just while deforestation has been the focus so far, and for obvious reasons, what's your sense of whether nature-based solutions um, are being understood as being urgently needed and therefore funded and financed as well? It's a really exciting area. And my sense is that it's been massively underestimated. I wanted to highlight some analysis that um, we at the Champions published at New York Climate Week. And we worked with uh, Vivid Economics and the Inevitable Policy Response on this. And on the downside, it found that some of the most valuable food and agricultural companies could lose up to 26% of their value by 2030. And it also found on the upside that early movers could mitigate the risk of value lost and that there could be significant upside opportunities, including in new markets for biofertilizer, alternative proteins, nature-based um, carbon credits and other areas. In other words, the opportunity set in the land use transition is really being underestimated. Um, we recently ran a series of regional forums uh, that were in Africa, APAC, LATAM and Caribbean and also um, in uh, Western Asia. And these focused on what projects do governments in those regions have that require finance? So through these forums, we identified about 56 different projects that were just in the agriculture and land-based themes with a total project cost of about 47 billion US dollars. But what we found as we looked at these projects is that they're all at very different ticket sizes. Mm. Um, there are also very different levels of maturity, but a lot more work needs to be done um, on these projects to actually make them financeable. And this is going to be multi-year work. Blended finance obviously presents a particular opportunity. And we're starting to see a lot more financial institution interest in this, but more work is going to be needed um, on that area too, um, so that these projects can actually be converted. Um, they're rooted in NDCs into things that can be financed by today's financial institutions. So just on that, what are the kind of solutions we need? It sounds like you mentioned they're projects of multiple ticket sizes. Do we need to figure out aggregation models? Is that is that one of the solutions that we need to develop at speed over the next couple of years? Yeah, very much so. And I, and I think I'd j just really start at the very beginning of these projects, which is Firstly, we need to know that they're really rooted 
in regional priorities and have comfort on that. And I think secondly, there's just some very basic information that financial institutions would need about what stage is this at? Has a feasibility study been conducted? Who are the project developers? What are the um, legal kind of risks relating to the project? Um, And then, of course, um, how much um, public finance is needed? What exactly is the role for private finance? Who are the right kind of target financial institutions or investors for the project. So that's what I call the very base information. Mm -hmm. I think the um, other component that's important is then on the structuring. So if we just take blended finance, what we hear from financial institutions is that they need to see some more actions, more at the policymaker level, generally for this area to be scaled up. So for example, um, we know that financial institutions look to policymakers to scale and aggregate concessional capital to de-risk these investments. We know that financial institutions keep telling us that they'd like to see MDBs and DFIs further modernised to catalyse private capital and increased use of guarantees. So these are all areas that need massive amounts of attention. I mean, Secretary, it could be great to sort of hear, you know, what are some of the practical examples that you've seen? Yeah, sure. So I think there's one on the project side that is very interesting. It's called AFR 100. It's the African Forest Landscape Restoration Initiative. And it looks to have 100 million hectares of land in Africa into restoration by 2030. Um, And that particular project is looking for about two billion US dollars. It's got initial investment by the Bezos Earth Fund. And the interesting thing here is Africa offers a huge restoration opportunity. There's about 700 million hectares of land in Africa that could be restored. Again, if we can get the financing um, in place and get um, the structures right to attract private capital, it's some way off now, but presents huge medium-term opportunity. The second one that I think is interesting is more of a kind of a fund, and that's the new AXA and Unilever fund, and that's looking to invest 100 million euros into a new regenerative agriculture fund. It's it's managed by a French um, asset management firm, Tikahal Capital. It's a private equity impact fund. And just to give um, a a bit of a recap of regenerative farming. So this is looking to rebuild soil, organic matter, restore degraded soil, uh, biodiversity, um, drawing on CO2 from the atmosphere, and also improving um, the water cycle. And the fund is specifically going to invest in projects and companies that are dedicated to improving in these areas. I mean, regenerative agriculture is just... Is something I don't. I still don't think we've quite wrapped our head around how to finance. So financing these solutions isn't, you know, just a necessity, is it, for climate and biodiversity? It's really needed for global economic stability. Just to quote one of GFANS's recent statements, there's uh, it highlights that reforestation and reduced deforestation could yield six to forty trillion US dollars in savings. Do you think this message of the economic risk of the continued depletion of nature is now being understood more by governments? Do you think we've seen some forward momentum from governments since last year? 
I feel we've really got a very long way to go on this, Helen. So, you know, last year at COP26, we had the Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forests and Landscapes. And that's for about 140 governments or 90% of the world's forests pledging to halt and reverse forest loss and degradation by 2030. However, obviously, when we look at um, the global economy today, as we see the OECD's um, latest estimates uh, that several of the world's largest economies are likely to go into recession, we start to see that these topics that are more medium and long term are really starting to fall off the agenda. Mm -hmm. And it does worry me because we can't get this time back and we can't get forests back. And so I think it's really important that we keep the pressure up on this area, that we lead by example in the finance sector. So I'm really looking to our group of the 30 financial institutions that have made their deforestation and nature commitments to demonstrate at COP27 that they have done what they said they would do. They have undertaken a risk assessment and um, they are moving forwards on this topic. And what we need to see from governments uh, is that they also um, stick to what they said they were going to do. And there's a couple of areas that I think really need to be prioritised towards and beyond COP27 by governments. It begs the question, what are they? But the first thing has to be law enforcement on illegal deforestation. That that has to be the number one priority. And then, you know, the commitment that governments made around um, deforestation was around protecting forests. So we need to know how are they verifying forest protection? Another area that was committed to included a significant amount of public and private funds um, to go into deforestation in nature. So we need to know How are donors and recipients um, taking action um, to ensure that those funds are actually deployed? And what, what are they going to? And the other area that was included in their commitment was around increasing finance and investment, including from all sources, including the private sector. So what exactly are governments doing to enable private capital? Um, I mentioned before the need to scale up financing of projects to attract private finance and also blended finance. So we need to see some of these steps being taken. I think last year, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero was very clear, for example, on what was needed to mobilise capital for emerging markets and developing economies. Um, This year, we've seen the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, again, be very clear on blended finance. So we need to know exactly what steps are going to be taken by policymakers so that private finance can have more confidence to move forward and can practically take steps itself, um, working with the public sector. So it sounds like, you know, the pressure's on um, for governments this year. Uh, and I, I know we've sort of talked a lot about why governments need to take action. And actually, one of the things that um, GFANS has said is that, you know, action by financial institutions will be critical to achieving net zero, but it is no substitute for action by government in the end. So just to kind of wrap up, what are sort of some of those key themes that we could just sort of highlight? And I guess, you know, that might be useful as for those listening Um, as they're thinking about their own communications leading up to COP, their own pressure that they need to apply, um, what, what would they be? I think the first thing is that this really is the Africa COP. And so what we would love to see from um, governments and also financial institutions is the understanding of the priorities 
in Africa and what actions will be taken specifically around financing Africa's needs. And that's not only on mitigation and net zero, which was a huge focus of last year's um, COP26 in Glasgow. There's a significant need um, for action and financing around adaptation and resilience. So um, when I speak with um, ministers that are in Africa, they will typically start off by saying um, Africa accounts for only 3% of emissions, but we are facing the physical impacts of climate change right now, today. And financing is absolutely essential. And they welcome private finance involvement. And then I think the other thing related is that Many of the topics we've been talking about, um, and I mentioned AFR 100, mm-hmm. um, that interesting uh, forest restra- restoration opportunity in Africa, um, these nature-based solutions that focus on forests, nature, people, communities, will also give us many of the solutions we need for adaptation and resilience. So we see how all of these topics are actually deeply interconnected. And increasingly, I expect to see the leadership space in the finance sector be not only around net zero and um, achievement of near-term targets, obviously uh, really critical for our action towards 1.5, but leadership will also need to include adaptation, resilience, curbing deforestation, scaling up um, nature-based solutions, innovating and working with the public sector really hard um, so that we can tackle all of these topics hand in hand. And also, I just think it's, you know, the outcome of COP27, which is why it's so important that nature and finance are embedded in there, will also provide a drumbeat leading up to COP15. Got two important COPs this year. So thank you so much for sharing with us today um, about the great work that you're doing with the Climate Champions and GFANS, and, and also just giving us food for thought as we're leading up to COP27. Helen, thanks very much and very much look forward to collaborating with you and with the finance sector further. Wow, that's some great work coming out of GFANS to build the ambition levels on this topic. Yeah, and I think Segarica really framed up there that there is a commitment from financial institutions to nature now that they understand that connection between nature and climate, which was a hard sell for a while, if we're honest. You know, it was it was all about climate and climate was all about industry emissions reductions and nature was kind of deemed something almost a bit fringe. Absolutely, Helen. We've seen this shift strongly in the last year, especially. And I think the work of JGP asset managers in Latin America, I'm going to be highlighting in a minute, is a great example of that. They are one of the signatories to the Innovative Finance for the Amazon, Cerrado and Chaco or EFAC initiative, supported by UNEP, the Nature Conservancy and the Tropical Forest Alliance. EFAC is a go-to team for banks, companies, and investors seeking to expand innovative finance for deforestation and conversion-free beef and soy in these critical landscapes. Fantastic. Can't wait to hear about it. Jose, welcome. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here. So, Jose, what convinced you to sign up for EFAC and what does it mean for your firm? When we decided two years ago to start uh, redirecting our efforts towards ESG, it was very clear for us that we couldn't be serious about ESG if we were not connected to net zero standards. 
In Brazil, over 70% of our GHG emissions are based on land use change and agricultural sector. It's impossible to be net zero without being forestation zero. That's why we decided to also sign that forestation zero commitment letter. And we can't just be uh, only sticks. We have to provide carrots as well. We have to be more productive, seducing and connecting the financial sector to the real economy in a very positive way. And EFAC is the way to be positively connected to the real economy of agriculture in Brazil and Latin America, creating financial mechanisms that are appealing both for the investors and the rural producers, the farmer, and all the supply chain connected to agriculture in Brazil. Thank you so much. And could you share any transaction from your portfolio that really illustrates EFAC in practice? We have been structuring many of the financial mechanisms. Some of them will be launched at June the COP27. Some others are already in place. The newest, youngest one of this family is a project that we just had uh, closed on two weeks ago. It's the Topaz project. It's a project that integrates livestock and forestry, producing papasu coconuts with the production of uh, beef. So we are not telling that this a farm is divided between livestock ranching, cattle ranching, and forestry. No, it happens on the same place, on the same hectare, on the largest oil forest in the world, that's Mata dos Cocais, translating is coconut forest that stays on the transition area between the Cerrado and the Amazon, or northern of state of Tocantins, in which we are financing a whole supply chain that is integrating those two economies, the cattle ranching with the livestock production for beef and the papasu coconut production. We are talking here that we are activating over 300 families and of uh, collectors, but also cattle ranchers on this region, very traditional cattle ranchers that otherwise would not be connected to sustainability standards. And it's not very expensive. We're talking about a $6 million financial mechanism. It's a small project, but with a very deep impact on one of the poorest regions in Brazil and one that is most threatened by deforestation in Brazil, by the expansion of, uh, of cattle ranching and by the expansion also of other practices such as paper and pulper. We are creating new sources of income and better profits, not just for the farmer, but also for the supply chains, for the communities, and for, for society as well. Thank you. Now, we often hear that the financial sector is so good at identifying pricing and managing risk. Does identifying nature risk drive you to invest in nature? And do you think this is a driver for other asset managers as they get better at identifying and pricing nature-related risks in their portfolios? Yes, for sure. We have to uh, increase the awareness of the nature risks, not only for the for us as service providers, but also for the asset owners. And they must make demands to us as service providers to improve our risk management and our risk framework connected to nature. So. If you have pressure from the investors to drive our efforts to improve our risky frameworks, I'm quite sure that we are going to create better financial products to address those major risks. 
One of the main strategies that we are applying right now at JGP is active ownership. It's a way to use your um, privileged position as a shareholder of a company, of a listed company most of the time, and to push this company to a better, to a higher standard of uh, compliance with nature, with society, with the future. Uh, the largest listed companies, they do not have a problem to source capital. They have a lot of different capital sources, but they are very sensitive to the shareholders' expectations. So my invitation to the asset managers, to asset owners, banks, all the shareholders, the, uh, the material shareholders globally, not just in Brazil, is to, for us to start exploring our synergies and making joint efforts of active ownership connected to supply chains. At JGP, the beginning of our trajectory towards an ESG suite of products were due to the pressure of one of our investors. But once we have this, uh, the necessary pressure from the investors, at JGP, we decided that ESG must also be an opportunity. And we start considering ESG as a revenue stream, not just as a compliance and risk management and as a risk framework. So I think that this trajectory to provide new revenue streams for the asset manager for JGP is a path that can be replicated to other service providers, to other asset managers, to other banks. Now, in your view, we need to drastically scale up nature-related finance and the mechanisms and schemes that are already in place for this. So what are your hopes going towards COP27 in Egypt to make this happen at the necessary speed and scale? COP26 was legendary for the financial sector. No other COP had so many um, commitments from the financial and private sector as COP26. And COP27 is the first COP in which we are going to provide deliverables from those promises made during the COP26. Uh, I'm optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. I can see a lot of movements from the financial sector globally to provide new nature-based solutions, but most of them are still connected to energy transition. What is very important, but for us in Brazil and most of Latin America, Energy transition is important, but not the priority. The priority is nature-based solutions. What I'm rooting for this COP27 results is to have more financial innovations from developing countries, from emerging markets. It will be a COP uh, that will be hosted by Egypt, by an African country, by a developing economy. So I think that that's my expectation, is to have a COP not concentrated on developed countries. That's a wonderful, exciting ambition, and I really hope to see that take place. Really uh, proud of this initiative. We're supporting EFAC as well. Um, so it's it's great to hear more uh, about one of the signatories and um, yeah, very exciting uh, work that you're doing. So congratulations. Perfect, Jessica. Uh, some really tangible examples of finance there that's reducing uh, deforestation and also supporting restoration. Wonderful. Indeed, the deforestation 
topic is one that seems very evident, but it can be very challenging to address for financial institutions in practice. So JGP and their peers in the EFAC initiative are just generating some great lessons that can inform the rest of the market. Hmm. And actually, one of the other partners of EFAC is actually going to be joining us next week, the Nature Conservancy. Andrew Deutz will be our guest. He is the Director of Global Policy, Institutions and Conservation Finance at the Nature Conservancy. And I'll be heading to Southeast Asia, where my guest will be Yasmin Sagita, who is Director of Sustainability of PT Royal Lestari Utama, which was originally financed by the world's first sustainability bond back in 2018. So don't miss it. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or Anchor FM as usual. And all that remains for us to say is a really big thank you to you for listening and to our editor, Robin Lee Byrne of Fairly Media, who makes the magic happen. See you next week. 